Good afternoon. It is Friday, the 30th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We are delighted to have Patrick Henningsen with us. And uh, we've also got a guest today, Sandy Adams. But uh, it is a good day. It's raining. And of course, that's wonderful for people with gardens, albeit we've got a little bit of a misty, rainy backdrop today. Well, let's kick straight off with a little bit of an update in Ukraine. We want to do this very quickly, but the key factor is that, of course, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is not uh, making any progress towards the deep Russian lines. I'd like to thank Theti Mapping here. I'm trying to choose different people. There are many good analysts out there, but you can see the in-depth Russian defense lines in black on the screen. And what is happening at the moment is the, uh, the Ukrainians are attacking. Uh, losses in vehicles and men uh, is always very high. Uh, but of course, they have to keep attacking because this is the uh, policy in their uh, adherence to what NATO needs. So let's just pop on. This is uh, the Avdivka front. Uh, the yellow lines indicate uh, Ukrainian positions, but the Ukrainians have made some minor gains here. If we bring in arrows, we can just show the areas that uh, they've taken. If you look at the scale on the map, we're simply dealing in large field areas. And uh, uh, the reality is that this is not changing the battlefield at all. Uh, if we move to a different area, the Lehman Front, we've gone up north a little bit here. Lehman is uh, ringed in the light uh, green on the left of your screen. Uh, but essentially on this part of the front, it's the Russians that have been uh, making gains, uh, particularly in the forested areas that you can see center screen. Um, so... Uh, some very small gains by the Ukrainians, but they are attacking. Some small gains by the Russians who are continuing to move forward in this area at least. If we go to the Bakhmut front, which has remained important, uh, remained important then it's, uh, it is clear that the Ukrainians have taken some territory. We're talking in a kilometre or less than a kilometre. Uh, however, the Russians are still entrenched in their positions in Bakhmud, um, the main Russian lines, though, well to the rear of Bakhmud itself. Now, the reality of what's happening is, of course, those wonder weapons from the Germans and elsewhere in uh, NATO has not worked. So there's now many pictures of destroyed leopard tanks and they've been lost to mines or Russian artillery or anti-tank weapons. And uh, it's very clear now that uh, the tanks supplied by NATO are not going to make any different to the outcome of the battle. Uh, but the Russians, uh, uh, I think, we can tell from this uh, particular video clip, delighted to be uh, hauling in Western equipment, which has been knocked out on the battlefield. And if you think this is simply putting out the Russian line, well, let's switch to uh, this report from Forbes, which is the reality. 25 tanks and fighting vehicles gone in a blink. The Ukrainian defeat near Mala uh, Togmachka was worse than we thought. And this is really it and all about it because the Ukrainians have had a huge loss in vehicles and with that loss has come a huge and horrific um, loss in manpower. Some people are talking about casualties for the Ukrainian offensive so far as well over 10,000, uh, but uh, we need more reports on those. And I'll just also add that, of course, the uh, 
reports of a Russian missile strike on Krematorsk. That now uh, does appear to have happened. It is almost certain that they hit one of the Ukrainian command and control centers. And there were not only Ukrainian generals present, two are mentioned, certainly in Russian reports, uh, but there were also some 50 killed, including, it would appear, NATO and or mercenary troops. So, uh, And just to clarify, that was the pizza shop? That was the pizza shop. So effectively, uh, people who were involved in the command centre were obviously taking their meals in the nearby pizza house. Uh, but this appeared to become known to the uh, Russians who targeted the whole facility. Uh, well, let's welcome Patrick to the programme and say uh, Zelensky had a very special guest a few days ago. Absolutely. Uh, taking a break from the uh, much vaunted uh, spring stroke summer offensive uh, to receive an esteemed delegation of uh, various Eurocrats and uh, WAF acolytes here. We'll play this clip. Uh, and Greta Thunberg, of all people, has made landfall in Kiev. This is a very exciting confab. We'll talk about what they're up to in just a moment. But here is the meeting and greeting session. Please. It's really a very important signal uh, for, uh, of uh, supporting Ukraine. It's, it's very important and, and uh, really we need need your help, your professional help. And I spoke with my team. You had a good conversation. I thank you very much for, for video format, uh, which we had together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, it, it, it's very important have, have to have this, uh, you made the decision about this compact of uh, very concretic steps. We've been there in Kherson region, in Mykolaiv region, and uh, a lot of cities, I think. He was having, he was struggling to find the words there, Patrick. Uh, just incredible, Patrick. Incredible video. Yeah, Zelensky seemed a bit disheveled and confused. Um, could have been a long night, who knows, but, um, but, uh, here's the team photo, uh, here. And, uh, we just, uh, just make note here, highlight the uh, positioning. I always look at the blocking of these photos and, uh, the way they've got Greta positioned. I would expect that she would be next to Zelensky, but of course, if they did that, it might reveal that she's in fact taller than Zelensky himself. So uh, again, the optics are always something that they're paying very close attention to here. Uh, but let's get to the, the task at hand. Now, why is this meeting happening? This is all about environmental degradation in Ukraine at the hands of the evil Russians. This is why this confab is happening. So they're surveying all the various environmental damage and all the evils done by uh, the evil Putin and the Russians on this. Um, it's, it's, you know, wondering, we're wondering if they're going to bring up these uh, particular incidents here. We'll bring on screen the Nord Stream sabotage. So arguably, this was the uh, largest man-made methane release in history and received wisdom is that Russia attacked itself. Uh, at least that's the Western line, but they have actually pivoted towards, it, it could have been a Ukrainian rogue cell. Nobody's quite sure. It's all basically left uh, really uh, in the gray zone of the information war. Uh, next on the environmental uh, rap sheet here, the Karkovka Dam. Again, Russia's attacked itself. Uh, strange, once again, strange. This was a huge ecological and humanitarian disaster that's affected uh, downstream water supplies for the people of Crimea, 
plus the reservoir upstream is completely uh, dry as well as is downstream. So huge environmental disaster. And, uh, and of course, last but not least, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, this is the big talking point at the moment. Big concern about whether Russia is going to, again, attack itself. This is the party line from Kiev and NATO. Russia is going to attack itself and cause some kind of a nuclear incident or a nuclear explosion. Does, I know it doesn't make any sense and it seems counterintuitive, but this is the party line at the moment uh, in Kiev and in NATO as well. So that brings us to this issue. And it, it is quite a controversial issue. If you remember the coup that wasn't a coup over the weekend, the, the previous 72 hours ahead of that, there was this big buildup. Zelensky was tweeting about Zaporozhia, saying Russia's planning to do some kind of a nuclear explosion or something like that. Uh, Lindsey Graham, Richard Blumenthal, senators doing a press conference saying this is going to be a violation of Article 5, etc. It was building up to a crescendo, and all of a sudden, the oxygen was sucked out of it with the Prigozhin uh, Russian MOD coup that wasn't a coup drama. So it's interesting, but let's look at the actual receipts here. Russia is actually on record, this is earlier, this was uh, you know, just about a week ago, asking the International Atomic Energy Agency to ensure the safety of this plant. Why? Because Russia's raising the alarm and they showed them this at the inspection, which we covered two weeks ago, that they've, they've uh, urged the IAEA uh, to ensure that Re Ukraine does not shell the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant because they showed their representatives the damage caused by Ukrainian shelling uh, just recently. So this has been made official. So there's a bit of a battle going on here uh, with propaganda and counter-propaganda you could say. But, you know, looking at the receipts, we saw the footage. It does seem like Ukraine is shelling the plant and has been doing for quite some time. That plant's being guarded by Russian troops. So Russia has control, operational control of their uh, nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. There's only one reactor that we know of that's still working, but it's not at 100%. Russia has also been moving spent fuel rods and waste from the uh, facility to avoid any type of incident, of course. But again, discard all that. The received wisdom in the West is Russia's planning to attack itself. I know it's strange. So, but this is the story that didn't get much press coverage, which I think is perhaps important. Russia has detained, this was last week, they detained uh, smugglers. So Russian smugglers who, were, uh, who had obtained KCM-137 from uh, somewhere, uh, paid... 3.5 million dollars, and this is Russia. The FSB in Russia, they've detained and they arrested these people. A kilogram KC-137 on behalf of the Ukrainian citizen, and the implication here is that this is going to be used to make a dirty bomb, and and so that that's the that's the accusation there. Of course, Ukraine has denied any wrongdoing in this. So this was interesting. The timing of this. So. Are we looking at a potential false flag attack here? I think it's worth uh, raising the issue, of course. So, and again, no, no coverage of this in the Western mainstream media other than this Reuters article, which, if, which is actually syndicated from TASS News. But it, notice that Reu Reuters did cover it. So that's uh, significant, I think. But well, I, I would think the Western mainstream would jump all over this, don't you think, if, well, you if, if it was fake news? You would think so. You would think so, absolutely, Patrick. But it doesn't end there because uh, here is a report 
from uh, Yahoo News uh, and uh, the fact that in various parts of Ukraine around Zaporozhye, uh, the, the authorities are holding evacuation drills amid a possible terrorist attack at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Because, of course, as you say, the narrative is that Russia is going to attack itself. Um, and, uh, well, it doesn't just end with evacuations. Uh, here we have uh, a little bit of video from a tweet, uh, where the, as, which you provided me earlier on, uh, so thanks for this, uh, where they are apparently decontaminating somebody, uh, running exercises in decontamination anyway. Uh, but we should not forget that, of course, this whole narrative about Russia attacking itself uh, with respect to the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, uh, the idea came from Rusi, in the first place, or at least the, this is where a lot of the sort of momentum for this idea came from in the in the Western press and so on. Uh, they published this in uh, April, uh, Dangerous Targets, Civilian Nuclear Infrastructure and the War in Ukraine. And they said Russia may manufacture a radiological incident at the Zaporozhye uh, nuclear power plant or other facility to spoil a Ukrainian offensive. The West should make clear to Russia that any such incident uh, would be followed by a massive response to mitigate damage. Um, well, one thing that uh, this report seems to have fed into then was uh, the congressional reg resolution that Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal introduced uh, on the 22nd of June. Uh, and they went as far as to say that uh, if Russia used nuclear weapons in Ukraine or attacked the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, uh, it would effectively result in uh, Russia being at war with NATO uh, and uh, and so on. So uh, they were attempting, I guess, to uh, to. Uh, to bring Even Article 5 uh, uh, back in, into the picture again. But if we come back to this uh, Yahoo News article again, I just wanted to highlight that, of course, they didn't write this because Yahoo News doesn't write news. They, they syndicate from various other places. This article originally came from the New Voice of Ukraine. Uh, and so I just wanted to highlight this particular website. Uh, so here it is here. This is the same article on the New Voice for Ukraine website. But who is the New Voice for Ukraine? Uh, they say about themselves, Envy is an independent media holding founded in 2014 by a team of professional journalists. Today, holding the holding includes the NV Weekly News Magazine, the NV.UA News website, the Radio NV nationwide talk radio station, and panel discussions. The New Voice of Ukraine was launched as the English version of NV.UA website in early 2022. But who are they working with? Well, let's have a look. Uh, the usual suspects. So we've got The Economist, The New York Times, The BBC, Deutsche Welle, uh, and they say that in addition, we operate with the Aspen Institute, Kiev, Deloitte, Hay Group, the European Business Association, the American Chamber of Commerce, Internews, Content Fund, the US Embassy of Ukraine, and the International Republican Institute. So, uh, Patrick and Brian, Patrick, first, my first question here is um, this article that was published about the, the evacuations and so on seems to be the Yahoo is the only Western media organization that has picked that up. But it's come from this organization, which seems like it's heavily supported by other Western media organizations. So it can't be independent. And again, but again, it sort of feeds the narrative that the Russians are about to attack themselves. So if there is uh, an incident involving Zaporozhye, uh, then undoubtedly this article is going to frame uh, some of the explanation for what's going on there. And what, what Yahoo News has done is they've uh, they've carved out a whole uh, piece of prime real estate right across their whole website for the new voice of Ukraine. So this is clearly a propaganda 
uh, outlet construct. If you probably look at the funding, I'm sure there's Soros money, U.S. Embassy, uh, et cetera, maybe even B- BBC Media Action. I wouldn't be surprised. But yes. uh, this is just a propaganda uh, window that's carved out of Yahoo News. Amazing that a major mainstream outlet would allow such partisan propaganda to be part uh, all over its website like that. Yes. And I just, sorry, I just, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to to add, you picked up quite rightly BBC Media Action there, just to remind viewers that it was BBC Media Action with Deutsche Welle, that was the German company shown on screen there, that set up uh, Suspilny, the uh, Ukrainian government media. So uh, it's a a pretty poisonous little nest. I just wanted to highlight this from Rebecca Harris, uh, Member of Parliament for Castle Point, because she says that we've got to, whenever we want to support Ukraine, we've got to stay safe online. And one simple step is to make sure we only go to the, the proper sources, including the Kiev Independent and the New Voice of Ukraine. Uh, so those are the key uh, places yeah. to go. But Patrick, uh, let's move on then to this. Uh, Ukraine, also from UK, Yahoo, Ukraine to hold elections after the war ends. Does that mean they're not holding any elections in the meantime? Well, you know, we've been told that this war is all about uh, we're fighting for democracy, right, in Ukraine. This is the, the raison d'etre, isn't it, for the, for the whole proxy war, NATO's efforts and everything. So apparently uh, they're not going to be holding any elections uh, in the near future uh, because Zelensky has decreed uh, that there can't be elections. I guess it's in the Constitution of Ukraine. There can't be elections if there's martial law, and martial law will likely be renewed uh, in August. I think it's on a 90-day uh, rolling renewal, and he claims that uh, it's probably going to be renewed, so they're only going to be able to have elections after they win the war. Okay, So this is a little bit disturbing because uh, there's really no military path to victory that we can see. Obviously, looking at our coverage over the weeks, that becomes pretty clear, uh, and we're not the only uh, outlet saying that. And at the same time, there's no moves for negotiations not by any of the NATO partners, nor from Kiev itself. So again, this is going to be an open-ended conflict. So there's no, to speak of, no democracy on the cards for Ukraine. And to add to that, churches are being shuttered, who are being suspected of being sympathetic to Russia, major religious bodies and churches. Uh, the media has been taken under state control. Any independent media that don't comply are shut down. Journalists are being imprisoned not just Gonzalo Lira, who uh, we've mentioned previously, the American uh, journalist in Kharkiv, but also numerous Ukrainian journalists who were uh, nabbed at at the onset of this conflict back in 2022. Uh, So not only that, we have forced conscription of all men 18 to 60 years old, and a lot of these are from ethnic oblasts as well. They're not from Lviv. They're not doing as much forced conscription on the streets of Lviv. So you could say there's a bit of an ethnic cleansing operation going on uh, in that respect. So all in all, this is not a good look for democracy in Ukraine. And so Zelensky basically has said, if we win, there will be elections. That's from uh, the horse's mouth himself. So again, you know, what are we actually fighting for? What is this proxy war really about? This is definitely not about democracy. I don't think you can make that argument right now. Yes, and just to, to finish, just to highlight that this article is also uh, picked up from the new voice of Ukraine as well. That's correct. Uh, for some and also, reason, they put that in the look, Yahoo Entertainment section. Filed under the Entertainment section, Mike. You couldn't make it up. 
Uh, that might just be because it's a Zelensky article, and that's where it should be housed. But I thought that's worth pointing out. Yes. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so uh, let's move uh, back to the UK then. And uh, we're going to kick off here with Nigel Farage. Uh, he uh, has made a statement with respect to his bank accounts. Let's just look at a minute or so of what he had to say. But actually, truth is, I'm not full of the joys of spring. I've been living with something for the last couple of months. That may well fundamentally affect my future career going on from here and whether I can even stay living in this country. I have been with the same banking group since 1980. I've had my personal accounts with them since that date and my business accounts right through the 1990s when I worked in the city of London and in recent years too. I'm with one of the subsidiaries of this big banking group, one with a very prestigious name, but I won't name them just yet. I got a phone call a couple of months ago to say, we are closing your accounts. I asked why, no reason was given. I was told a letter would come, which would explain everything. The letter came through and simply said, we are closing your accounts. We want to finish it all by a date, uh, which is around about now. I didn't quite know what to make of it. I complained, uh, I emailed the chairman, uh, a lackey phoned me uh, to say that it was a commercial decision which I have to say, I don't believe for a single moment. So I thought, well, there we are. I'll have to go and find a different bank. I've been to six, uh, no, seven banks, actually. Um, asked them all, could I have a personal and a business account? And the answer has been no in every single. So the answer has been no in every single case. Now, uh, of course, many people are very uh, cynical about Nigel Farage uh, himself, uh, but this isn't really the point. The point is, if he's uh, telling the truth, and I've got no reason to believe that he isn't, uh, his bank account has been closed for some indeterminate reason. Um, and of course, if his can be closed, anybody's can be closed, really. Now, uh, we were talking, Patrick and, and Brian and I were talking about this before the programme, and the rumour, I believe, is that the although he wouldn't name the bank, the bank is Coots. Uh, people may have, uh, if that's true, may have a view on uh, the sensibleness of banking with uh, with coots. That's allegedly is coots. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. So if that's true. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, he went on. We've got another little clip here because I just wanted to show a, a, another little clip because he, want, he then brought Chris Bryant into this because uh, there was an issue with Parliament. So let's have a brief listen to this. A few months ago in the House of Commons, Sir Chris Bryant, chairman of the Privileges Committee, said using parliamentary privilege that I had received large sums of money directly from the Russian government and he named the calendar year in which it had happened. Truth is, I didn't receive a penny from any source with even any link to Russia. And yet, because he said it, it stands. I wrote to the speaker, I demanded an apology. Nothing has been forthcoming from Sir Chris Bryant. Well, I wonder whether that is what's given me part of the problem. I have employed a top firm of London lawyers. Uh, I'm going through a series of subject access requests to find out what is held on me uh, by the international agencies and by the bank that wants to close me down. But think about it. Without a bank account, you effectively become a non-person. You don't actually exist. So there's two issues there. The first is that Chris Bryant, uh, Sir Chris Bryant, now uh, has apparently made a statement about him. Uh, and of course, what uh, may have happened is that uh, this organisation may put a may have put a tag on his uh, his bank account. Therefore, this is CFAS, 
which is all about fighting fraud and financial crime together because of this alleged contact uh, with or money coming from the Russians. Uh, if there's any evidence for that, it certainly hasn't gone through any due process. But uh, I just perhaps, I mean, if he's, he's known about this for a couple of months, it's perhaps unfortunate that he didn't highlight this uh, a few weeks ago because that would have given people even more opportunity uh, to get their uh, responses in uh, for the uh, consultation on the digital pound. Because as he said at the end there, of course, this effectively uh, removes uh, people from society. If they don't have a bank account, they can't take part in society. It becomes very difficult for people. And if we also remove cash from the picture, then it becomes, in fact, impossible uh, for yeah. people. So um, that consultation, just a, a final reminder, ends today. So if anybody uh, wants to take part in that, in light of uh, what Farage has talked about, then that might be a wise thing to do to get it in today. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add, I think I'm correct in saying that Chris Bryant in his day was uh, very big in common purpose, so he was a future leader. Um, now we're starting to see what sort of leadership that involves. Yes. Now, a very brief comment on the on online safety bill, because that is uh, continuing through uh, the House of Lords and the government has announced some new developments there. Uh, now, of course, uh, these new developments are, are all related to uh, digital ID. And if we remember what the uh, government said uh, in their digital ID FAQ, which was, uh, is the government creating a mandatory ID card? And they, they said that this is with not the online safety bill, but the, uh, the legislation with respect to, to digital identity. Uh, the proposed legislation does not include any proposal to create either a digital or physical ID card. The government is committed to make it as easy as possible for people to prove who they are online and access services they need without creating mandatory ID cards. This, uh, we said, was misleading and we stand by that because, of course, the online safety bill is effectively making it mandatory uh, by requiring uh, uh, online services and websites to uh, identify whether you are a child or not. So uh, what they're saying is that uh, they're, they've planned rules to prevent children from viewing pornography, content that promotes suicide, self-harm, or eating disorders, uh, that updates to the bill will hold services that publish or allow these things on their sites. Uh, they're gonna hold them to a new standard on age verification and age estimation tools that they use. And of course, the simplest way to identify whether somebody is a certain age is to make them identify themselves online. So. They're, they're using the terms and conditions of the websites to effectively make uh, this stuff uh, uh, mandatory. But let's just uh, put this back on screen and look at what else they're doing. Um, action on harms from app stores. So they're saying that Ofcom will research the role of app stores in allowing children to access harmful content. Again, uh, ID required here is going to be the ultimate uh, uh destination. Uh, they want to boost media literacy, so Ofcom will be tasked with improving the general public's ability to identify disinformation and evaluate trusted sources of information. And they're going to have to publish a strategy every three years on how it plans to deliver that. And finally, to empower adults to take control of content. So they're going to uh, help with the, uh, uh, the effective censorship of uh, people by uh, giving people the power to effectively block content that they don't want to see online and so on. So yeah. There it's, we go. It's pretty clear what's coming. And uh, I, I would imagine that Farage is starting to wake up pretty quickly. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and uh, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. 
Excellent. Well, I'd just like to add in there a huge thank you to Claire T from Bath, who sent us a very generous donation. Um, so thank you very much to that. And we just say to everybody that uh, we want the information to go out far and wide. But to grow the UK column, we do need your financial support. And it's very much appreciated when people uh, join up with a membership or they're making a donation. But a uh, big thank you to Claire. It was very kind of you. Now, on the um, on the UK Column uh, website, uh, we've got the Fenethys uh, Residential School timeline. It's part of this article. So David Scott and the Fenethy ladies doing a lot of work to get the detail out of the horrors of the Fenethy Residential School and what was done to the little girls. Finally, uh, there is some interest uh, by the Scottish Parliament, uh, but it also a appears that there are people who already want to warn off members of the Scottish Parliament from getting too close to the uh, truth about what's happened here. Uh, but uh, David and the Fenethy team will continue to dig and we will continue to report. Now, a big event coming up. That's the Great Net Zero debate, uh, which is going to be Glastonbury Town Hall on the 7th of July at 17.45. Um, lots of good speakers, but one of the most important speakers for us is Sandy Adams, who has really been working very hard with her team to put this together. So, Sandy, let's welcome you to, to UK Column News. Uh, well done. You're really showing us how to take action and make things happen on the ground. Tell us a bit more. Well, thank, thanks very much, Brian, um, and thank you for your support in all this because it, it really it really helps. Um, well, we, we it was following the the town hall fifteen minute cities talk that went viral, which was a big surprise to me more than anyone else um, because uh, I didn't really know I was being filmed, and it was just a a kind of a stream of consciousness that came out. It was fifteen years of frustration with. The Green Council in Glastonbury that I've had, um, and so th that tended to to go viral, and it got something over six million views on 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 YouTube, Twitter, whatever, wherever, um, and it, it made me realise that actually people do want this information badly. Um, and during that talk, I did ask the mayor if we could have a, an open debate about the climate emergency policies within the council um, and uh, their net zero um, uh, policies that they're, they're bringing in uh, all the time, these, these, these sort of... Uh, the stuff that, that that's coming through our town council and the money that's being spent on climate change. Um, and this is our money, you know, this is our money. Um, and so I, I asked them for, for a meeting. They didn't come up with one. They were definitely not interested. So we decided to invite them to our event. We've paid for the whole thing. We've crowdfunded it. We've got people to help us with the money and we've been able to hire the town hall it's taken us four months to get all this together and we've invited the council to come along and the mayor um the mayor is is a lady called uh, indra don francesco and she's going to do an address um for in 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 support of of climate change um and we have uh, and there's other um green councillors coming um and we've got a we, we've got uh, two climate scientists um uh to to really to give the the, the reality of climate change um we've got a, a 
a chap called Peter Taylor, who wrote a book called Chill in the early 2000s. I don't know if you're aware of that book, but it was um, a very interesting um, book that he wrote. Um, and it was really, it was, it was to do with the fact that he, he, he worked for the United Nations for a period of time and was in, you know, sort of as a consultant to the IPCC. And he realised quite a way in that all of their information was, was not quite right. So he wrote a book called Chill. Um, it was called A Reassessment of Global Warming Policy. Um, because for a while, and, and for a while, he he was vilified by the whole academic, you know, sort of uh, all the people that he'd been working for, uh, including the United Nations and the IPCC. So he was literally persona non grata, and he went to work then in the US um, for the environmental studies, um, and he he decided that that really uh, his work was was not was never going to be with the with the United Nations anymore and he's he's brilliant he's got two degrees from uh, Oxford University and he has really gone into the whole um sort of cycles the, the natural cycles that determine our weather not the computer models uh which don't actually understand this concept of cycles whatsoever. So he's really interesting. We've got a chap called Ralph Ellis, who's done a lot of work into um, uh, tornadoes, apparently, tornadoes and uh, the procession uh, of uh, things like the modulation of ice ages via procession and dust and albedo, which is something to do with the reflection of the sun's rays on certain surfaces. And he's, a, he's an amazing polymath. He's a pilot. He's a climate scientist, he's a computer analyst, and he's a historian, an amazing chap, Ralph Ellis. So we've got those two, and we've got somebody also talking about EMFs and a bit of 5G for a very short while, uh, and also on how the how, cli- uh, how um, EMFs destroy um, biological um, systems like nature and human beings. And so that's really good because I know that Indra, who is the the mayor is very interested in trees and conservation of trees um, because she's she's really doing a lot of activism work. And, it, you know, the thing is that these people, people like Indra, who is our mayor, who is in the XR, actually, they do, you know, in, in a funny sort of way, they care about the environment, but they possibly don't have all the information they need or, you know, to go on with this. So that's why um, we're talking about it. Yeah. Super. Sandy, really excellent. If we if we sum it up very simply, what, what you're doing is bringing experts together to really challenge the uh, official line on matters uh, to do with climate change heading into Agenda 2030. And uh, that mm-hmm. is going to be uh, done with, with the public presence. So that's a pretty powerful way. UK column, delighted to help you get this streamed out at the time. With so, the, so yeah, so yeah. It, it will be streamed out on ukcolumn.org slash live. Uh, and, uh, but I hope as many people as possible will get along to that. So, so Sandy, thank you very much for that. Now let's, uh, let's move on to France then. And of course, uh, everybody be aware of, uh, of what's going on in France at the moment with uh, huge riots again, uh, this time as the result of a death uh, as a, at the hands of a policeman. Uh, the policeman now has been charged with homicide uh, and is in cu- custody, so we will see how that goes. But nonetheless, uh, Patrick, uh, uh, obviously the situation in France is absolutely at boiling point uh, and anything that comes along is really triggering people out on the streets uh, at the moment. 
Macron holding all kinds of emergency meetings, wondering what to do about it. Uh, but uh, really, that country, uh, well, is it too, too extreme to suggest that it's very close to uh, civil war, perhaps conflict within itself? Yeah, that, that footage you just showed right there, pretty shocking. That's from the Pablo uh, Picasso district of the city of Nanterre in France. Yes, and Emmanuel Macron was forced uh, to come back uh, from Brussels to lead a, a crisis meeting, so the French equivalent of uh, Cobra. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's cascading across the country. This kind of was a pr- police brutality story initially that gained a lot of traction, the grassroots. And fr- France is just a tinderbox in terms of, um, let's say, people that are very disgruntled with the government. And this is, you can say, this is an extension of the vaccine passport, a uh, whole debacle uh, for the for the Macron government and the widespread uh, protests. That was an amazing movement that uh, was even more diverse than the Yellow Vest movement. So all of these things have compounded, plus Macron's invoking uh, the sort of judicial uh, hammer, as it were, uh, to bypass uh, parliament for legislation. So that running kind of state of emergency style government, very unpopular president, doesn't have a mandate um, and he still wants to crown himself uh, emperor uh, in the next election cycle. Yes. Okay. What can I say? Right. OK, so, well, let, let, let's. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, let, let's move on then to uh, to the United States. And uh, well, you've got a headline from 21 Wire here. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court votes to end university admissions based on race. This is affirmative action. That's what most people will know this by. This was a policy that was implemented by uh, JFK, of all people, uh, in 1963. And it was designed initially to sort of balance out the representation of various races and ethnic groups and so forth. And it really held the day until 1996, uh, when a number of decisions, court decisions, basically dropped it in California, uh, prop. Prop 209, and of course, the Fifth Circuit ruling uh, that banned it in multiple states. But since that time, universities have still kept this policy. And one of these uh, universities is Ivy League Harvard, and there's others as well. But this particular case was brought against Harvard and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And the court confirmed that institutions like Harvard automatically uh, awards racial preferences to African Americans and Hispanics while penalizing white and Asian Americans. And this brings up that issue of Asian quotas. This is the sort of policy at Harvard where they've uh, discriminated against uh, uh, Chinese American students, for instance, uh, in favor of other quotas for African Americans and Hispanics. And they go on. This is a landmark ruling, by the way. This policy has has held pretty much firm um, in a lot of institutions for employment and for college admissions. The Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment, says the majority uh, Supreme Court opinion. I think it was a six to three decision. So the other thing is this is a legacy of Donald Trump's presidency, where he appointed a number of conservative justices, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh. And, uh, and so th- this is part of that legacy. So all the, the there's been a liberal court for the better part of the you know the 20th century, second half of the 20th century, and now you're starting to see with the abortion Roe v. Wade ruling plus this, the next one up is going to be Biden's student loan forgiveness. 
that's coming up. This is a very productive uh, judicial session here for the Supreme Court, but it's uh, raised the uh, ear and the anger of progressives and Democrats, uh, and also Joe Biden himself. I think we have Biden's comment on this, if we can roll that video. Where a student grew up and went to high school, it means understanding the particular hardships that each individual student has faced in life, including racial discrimination that individuals have faced in their own lives. The court says, quote, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an application's discussion of how race has affected his or her life. But it's, it's through, but be it through discrimination or inspiration or otherwise, end of quote. Because the truth is, we all know it, discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today. So you had to repeat it three times. So um, the truth is, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to disagree with the president. Uh, America has laws, and in fact, discrimination is unconstitutional. Um, it, you can't find uh, any real institutional examples of discrimination in America. In fact, of all the countries on the planet, it's probably the least discriminatory um, compared to other countries. So I don't know what the president's talking about, but this is these are the sort of dog whistle issues that uh, is stock and trade for the Democratic Party, especially during an election cycle. So uh, pumping up the fear that, you know, these these racist uh, laws are going to be passed if Republicans get into office. Social Security is going to be taken away from the elderly and they're going to be thrown out on the streets uh, in destitution and all these sort of talking points. So Biden uh, is is at it again, basically. So apparently America is a racist country, but nobody can find any actual examples where racism is an institutional issue. It's just expected to be so through the rhetoric uh, of, of the, the left in this case. Okay, thank you for that, Patrick. Well, of course, if that agenda is happening in the United States, it's certainly happening in UK. So let's have a look at this uh, Sky headline here. Royal Air Force unlawfully discriminated against white male recruits in bid to boost diversity and inquiry fines. And uh, just a little bit of the uh, story here is that basically a number of white male recruits exceeded the requirements uh, in order to uh, be accepted into the Royal Air Force, but they were rejected simply on the colour of their skin, their age and their sex. Uh, this has uh, then broken surface. A senior officer had to also step, well, did step down in disgust of what was happening. Um, but who is uh, now um, squirming as he has to talk about it? It's Ben Wallace. Let's have a look at this little clip and uh, listen carefully to what he says or doesn't say. Uh, they didn't lower the standard. They discriminated against those people that were applying who were above the standard. So our military output wasn't put at risk. However, the treatment of the people applying was, what it was, you know, was wrong, unsatisfactory. Uh, and uh, you know, I also think that the treatment of the officer who raised concerns uh, and her very genuine uh, worry is being ignored was something that is, needs to be looked at considerably about why uh, she was ignored, why indeed she was put under that pressure. And I don't want to see anyone put under pressure to do something like what we've seen in the RAF, but I have committed that uh, I will be publishing 
almost in full the whole report, I think, as full as I can publish it. Uh, and then we can discuss about what happens next. So there he is, uh, Ben Wallace, uh, squirming. But of course, the output of the military was put at risk because better qualified candidates were rejected simply on the basis they were white, uh, they were male. Um, so he's not telling the truth there. But did you notice he couldn't even refer to white male candidates? They were changed into the people. Well, of course, with uh, his hand on the tiller, the military in UK is dissolving under the weight of the woke agenda. Um, I went and had a look at the Ministry of Defence Twitter page earlier today, where I found this, let's talk pride with Flight Lieutenant Louise Tagg. Before joining the forces, she played volleyball for England and now represents the Royal Air Force in various sports. And uh, Adam Powney spoke to her for our podcast series, Serving with Pride. Uh, it was totally worth it. Let's have a look at this uh, clip. This AS1 had recently identified as non-binary. And as a result, they had to make a decision about uniform. But they were also incredibly pleased that they were even given a choice. So. During the march, I was talking to them about the uniform and they said, oh, I've chosen to wear the male uniform because for me, that just feels like the right thing to wear. And it was incredible to see how just something as, as simple as changing their uniform, changing from a skirt to a pair of trousers, made them feel so much more at home and so much more relaxed, you know, and that showed on their face. And throughout the whole march, you know, they were smiling, they were happy. And you just think if all we had to do was change one piece of uniform to get that reaction, it was totally worth it. Uh, well, Patrick, I've got to say, I've heard that the Russians are absolutely terrified having uh, seen this particular clip. So we, we, we are to believe that the, the armed forces are now at a stage where if somebody doesn't get the right pair of trousers or dress, they could be unhappy. And that would mean that we can't fulfill the function of defence. This is woke gone completely mad. I've watched that little clip several times. I think it's utterly amazing that we've sunk to these levels. And well, they should be. The Russians should be concerned about this. This is uh, a, a major challenge to the military dominance on the battlefield, but uh, no, no problem. They can still deploy the Unicorn Brigade and Sarah Ashton Cirillo there in Kharkiv. Perhaps they can join forces. Maybe the RAF can join the Unicorn Brigade and do a little recon on the front lines. I don't know. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I do know, and it will be happening already. But of course, the woke agenda isn't just in the uh, military. Uh, it's also in our schools. And uh, let's have a look at this uh, tweet from Andrew Bridgen here. He says he's been informed by former colleagues in the Conservative Party that their whips office warned them not to vote for my child protection bill. So once again, we're getting a glimpse that if we look at the uh, Conservatives, at least, um, basically, we're not going to get any protection for children. On the contrary, they're going to go the other way. Let's hear a little bit about what Andrew Bridgen had to say in the House. Uh, Andrew Bridgen. <clears throat> Madam Deputy Speaker, I seek leave of the House to bring in a bill to prohibit the promotion of social transition practices in schools, to require schools to inform parents if their child has indicated an intention to pursue or has commenced social transition to provide for a right for parents to access information about lessons in schools, 
to make provision about the teaching of the concept of gender identity in schools and for connected purposes. Madam Deputy Speaker, the issue I bring to the House today needs a bill, the very necessity of which is both grotesque and revealing of an absurdity that turning a blind eye to the real-world effects of what seemingly good-faith legislation has had on our education system, schools and society as a whole. So we may all be clear on what the proposed bill refers, let me start by defining the terms mentioned. Gender identity is the theory that, though we may be biologically male or female, the more important characteristic is, that we, is what we actually feel like on the inside. Social transitioning is the conscious act of self-rejection of our biological reality. Cases of this happening used to be one of the clearest examples we've ever had of an exception that proves the rule. I'm sickened to say that under all our noses, members of society either politically or educationally tasked with helping bring up our children have turned raising the next generation into a science experiment. Well, couldn't say it better, but at least we've got uh, Andrew Bridgen speaking out. As somebody said in the chat box just now, it's almost like he's the only MP brave enough to speak on anything in the House. But he was challenged pretty viciously by this man, Ben Bradshaw, the MP for Exeter. Uh, Evening Standard a little while ago had this headline, trans community even more set upon than gay and lesbian people were says MP, and he apparently hopes that the UK Parliament will soon have a trans MP. So the Tories ganged up on Andrew Bridgen, uh, but we also uh, had ben, Bridge, Brent, sorry, ben Bradshaw ready to leap in and uh, help crush um, what, uh, uh, what he, Andrew Bridgen was trying to do. Now, I'll just add in here that yesterday I was able to do another interview with Kim Isherwood from Public Child Protection Wales. Uh, really interesting discussion. She was reporting how they are getting on in challenging this terrible agenda in schools. And uh, of course, we very quickly got into the power of the woke agenda and how it is uh, unleashing its destruction really across UK society. That can be no accident, uh, but we'll have that interview up on the UK Column website as soon as possible. Okay, let's uh, move on to aspartame then. So here it is. Uh, and uh, of course, this is the artificial sweetener, which is in just about everything uh, these days and has been for many years. Uh, well, the World Health Organization and people uh, will understand people's cynicism over that. Uh, but nonetheless, they have uh, the at least the International Agency for Research on Cancer uh, is about to publish uh, the results of two evaluations uh, on the on the potential causation of cancer by aspartame. Uh, and uh, so, just wanted to remind everybody how this particular artificial sweetener came about because the story is very interesting. So let's just have a look at uh, uh, this. Uh, the product was accidentally discovered in 1965 by a scientist from Searle, the pharmaceutical company. Uh, and uh, well, he got some on a thumb or a finger and licked his finger and discovered how sweet it was. Uh, that really, this sweetener, sweetener was not the purpose of it. So that was forgotten about uh, from 1965 until the late 70s, uh, when the idea of artificial sweeteners uh, was gaining traction in society. And uh, Searle thought, well, hey, we've got a product which might work. Uh, but at the time, the Food and Drug Administration said no. Uh, they refused approval uh, because it might induce brain tumours. So there's definitely consideration that there was a link to cancer uh, at that time. 
Uh, but uh, the famous Donald Rumsfeld rode to the rescue because he was the chairman of Searle at the time. He had not yet entered government. Uh, and he decided he would call in all his markers, as he described it at the time. Uh, and of course, uh, those markers were called in just in time for Reagan to become president and for Donald Rumsfeld to be uh, chosen to be part of uh, Reagan's government. Uh, and Rumsfeld chose, uh, in fact, who would sit in the transition uh, administration uh, as uh, the members of the Food and Drug Administration panel would make the decision. Uh, and so uh, Rumsfeld chose who would be the FDA chair, and the FDA then went ahead and, and approved aspartame uh, doing a 180-degree uh, U-turn overnight, effectively. And then, subsequently, several FDA staff left their posts within the FDA in the subsequent years and got new jobs at companies associated with aspartame. And just to give some impressions of this, uh, Sherwin Gardner, for example, uh, he signed to approve aspartame uh, and then left to become vice president of the Grocery Manufacturers of America, which is a huge distributor, distributor of aspartame. Uh, Dr. Hard Roberts, he worked closely with the Public Board of Inquiry and left to become vice president for science and technology at the National Soft Drink Association. Stuart M. Pape, Pape, or Pape, uh, Pape, I guess it is, was special assistant to the FDA commissioner from 74 to 79, and then left to take a position with the law firm Patton, Biggs & Blow, a firm that worked closely with the National Soft Drink Association. Uh, and D uh, Robert A. Domer uh, worked as a trial attorney for the Health and Human Services and was involved in several cases related uh, to aspartame. He then left to work for a law firm that provided legal advice to Searle. So it all worked very well. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld's absolutely key to getting the approval. Uh, but we've got to remember that uh, the FDA then subsequently published this uh, sugar substitutes, Americans opt for sweetness and light. And we just take a quick uh, look at it, one paragraph from this, the aspartame controversy. While questions about saccharin may persist, the safety of another artificial sweetener, aspartame, is clear cut, say FDA officials. FDA calls aspartame sold under trade names such as NutraSweet and Equal, one of the most thoroughly tested and studied food additives the agency has ever approved. The agency uh, says that more than uh, 100 toxicologic to uh, Tox toxicological and <laughs> clinical studies that it's reviewed confirm that aspartame is safe for the general popu population. Now, that was published uh, in 1999, uh, but unfortunately, that page no longer exists. So if you want to see that, you've got to go to the uh, Wayback Machine. Uh, but uh, very briefly, uh, Patrick, I mean, obviously, uh, um, in the meantime, this uh, controversy over aspartame has rumbled on for uh, 30 years, 40 years, and suddenly uh, the World Health Organization is interested in it again. And it seems that those original suggestions of links to cancer, there might be something in them. Yeah, the law firm you mentioned is Patton Boggs, uh, and it, they, they just so happen to have been very instrumental in Iraq as well, along some of these other uh, big establishment, deep state uh, beltway law firms. Um, but so uh, high fructose corn syrup, aspartame, uh, NutraSweet, uh, the new one, I think, is called sucralose, okay? All of these things have, are, are all artifacts of the Cold War. When the U.S. put an embargo on Cuba, they uh, killed the sugarcane industry. And this is when industry, the petrochemical industry and all the various uh, chemical uh, companies in the U.S. came up with these, all these new diet, sugar-free diet, low-fat, all these food substitutes. 
um, for a cheaper, uh, more practical substitute for actual sugar. And it took off and they marketed a whole range of diet, sugar-free, et cetera. So this is, a, in some ways, the, the pretext for this was the Cold War, was the embargo of Cuba in, in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. And so this is the legacy of this. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, let's uh, finish up on this one. And a big thank you to the UK column viewer that said, was I aware? Was I aware that King Charles had activated the climate countdown clock with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan? Uh, the climate clock has a countdown of six years and uh, 24 days, and that's taking us through to uh, 2030. Um, so pretty interesting stuff, actually. Uh, this was part of the Evening Standard article, well, a picture at least, and you can see centre of your screen some of the many organisations uh, supporting it, including the UK government, of course, and HSBC Bank. Um, but uh, I was fascinated with the picture, the whispers and smirks here. I wonder what they were saying. Uh, but uh, what was extraordinary is if you went looking for this major event, I mean, the King was involved, so it's got to be a major event, absolute silence from the BBC. And I just wonder whether the BBC has got squeamish because so many people are very concerned about Charles' relationship with the World Economic Forum and Mr. Klaus Schwab. So I can't explain this. Have I missed it on the BBC website? Please check if you can. But it seems to me rather strange they haven't reported it. But of course, when you get into this, you find that very quickly you're into a very murky pond. You've got forums uh, you've got uh, contractual partnerships with the UN. There's talk about all the actors involved. Global mayors are involved in this. And of course, Mark Anderson has been reporting all of their works on UK Column for quite some time. And altogether, they are clearly working in a common purpose. Well, from the article, uh, Nick Henry, the CEO of Climate Action, was quoted. He said, we're honoured uh, to be joined by His Majesty the King Charles at the Climate Innovation Forum for the National Climate Clock Switch-On during London Climate Action Week. Uh, this powerful illustration of the scale of the climate emergency also reminds us that there is still time to avert the disaster. Now, I've put in there, be afraid, very afraid, because this is how I read everything they're pushing at us, that we've got to be afraid of what's happening. Well, that's according to them. We need to align all actors. Here they are, government, cities, investors, businesses, and civil society to move at speed and scale. So there he is declaring what is obviously the common purpose of this uh, group of people. And if we add this one in as well, he said it's vital that we embrace the pro-growth opportunity of the net zero transition and turn ambition into transformational action. And I interpreted that as the Great Reset. Just very quickly, because we're getting short of time, Sandy, I'll just ask you for a very brief comment on what you think. Well, it, it's another um, another scare, scaremongering tactic. I mean, how, how many of these deadlines have we had and they've passed? I mean, we're looking at 2004, Antarctica would be the only habitable continent uh, by the end of this century because if global warming remains unchecked. That was Professor David King, the UK's chief scientist in 2004. I mean, if I, if I had 50 quid for every 
deadline that we've been given. You know, Al Gore, for instance, you know, uh, when he brought out Inconvenient Truth, you know, said that, um, you know, we, you know, there'd be no snow by, I think, no, actually it was, it was David Viner that said there'd be no snow in 2000. Um, and then in 2018, we had the beast from the east. I mean, apparently children wouldn't know what snow was. We've had all these different deadlines with Al Gore as well with the Inconvenient Truth, uh, which was in the uh, in the late 90s. So, you know, none of these predictions have come true. So because this is yet another clock. It's a clock, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's not based on truth. It's fantasy, which is why they keep having problems with the deadlines. But let's just finish off. Thank you for that. Let's just finish off the segment. Um, here, here's the great man talking again. And um, we learn um, that Climate Action was formed in 2007 in a unique contractual partnership with the UN Environment. Climate Action's flagship event, the Sustainable Innovation Forum, now in its ninth year, is held alongside the annual United Nations climate change meetings, showcasing technologies, policies and finance to mitigate global carbon emissions. So King Charles is not working in the best interest of the, com uh, the country. He's working absolutely with these agencies, and I think he needs to be held fully accountable. Uh, but according to his uh, Twitter page, he's been speaking up for the planet for 50 years. Shame about the people living on the streets and people who can't feed themselves. But he's speaking up for the planet. Um, but uh, I couldn't resist this one because now he's heading into space with Astra Carter. He's not only going to save the world, he's going to save space as well. And I think it would be good for him to go into space in order to sort his problem out. Uh, but this was part of the story. And I thought this was very significant. So this is a huge advertising agency, J.C. Deco. And if we look in Plymouth, virtually every bus stop advertising hoard is owned by them, very high-tech, digital. Uh, they're joining the climate clock switch on. And uh, they say that to mark this moment, the climate clock campaign across JC Deco's UK digital screens has gone live. So what we're actually now going to see on the back of uh, King Charles' work is brainwashing and fear spread across all of these hoardings right the way across the country. Uh, pretty horrific, really. Yes. On that, well, we're, we're just, we just got <laughs> one little video clip here that we're going to show. So, yep. Pat, Patrick, just introduce this because Biden seems to be a naughty boy. John Solomon, Just the News, great journalist uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, through a recent uh, deposition, was able to get documents um, for the investigation to the Biden crime family syndicate found a phone number uh, in Hunter Biden's uh, communications, decided to call the phone number, and lo and behold, well, we'll let John Solomon uh, tell you what happened. Here's the video. What was turned over from the FBI, there had been some documents that law enforcement had gotten through other means. And one of those documents got leaked to me, and it had a cell phone number that Hunter Biden was paid for. So I figured, oh, this is my chance. Maybe I can, I've been trying to get fair comment from Hunter Biden. So I'm gonna call the cell phone. So I called the cell phone, and guess who picked up the phone? Oh boy. Joe Biden. Joe? Oh Joe boy. Biden. What? Boy, was he shocked when he got, uh, when he picked up the phone and found out it was me. He hung up pretty quickly. Quite incredible, Patrick. So that was a burner phone, which Hunter Biden was paying $300 a month, an international burner phone for the big guy. For Joe Biden. So, I mean, this till today, the president of the United States is carrying a burner phone given to him by Hunter to talk business. 
So, I mean, how long until the impeachment hearings? I don't know. But this could be one of those things that sinks Joe Biden's reelection bid. So, uh, cue Gavin Newsom exit yeah. stage left. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, we'll talk about a bit more about that in extra. Yeah. Pat, thank you very much. Um, thank you also to Sandy. Now I'm going to say there is extra UK column extra is coming up shortly. So if you're a member, please join us for that. And Sandy Adams has kind of agreed to stay so we can have a bit more discussion about matters to do with climate change and Agenda 2030. We may mention the King as well. So if you can join us then. Uh, but I'd like to end just thanking again everybody that's supporting UK column and enabling us to function and actually grow. Uh, we really appreciate it. We'll leave it there. We'll be back with you very shortly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.